Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for being here. Honor, privilege, and pleasure. Very much like uh, the chance to get to chat with you all. As always, 844 844- 900-2825-844-900 buck. I should probably do the the buck part of that first. 844-900 buck and then go into the number. But lines are open. Love to hear from you. Please do give a call. Much to discuss today. Oh my. You've got the latest or rather we've got because we're doing this together here. We've got the latest on the Obamacare repeal. Got Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General on the hot seat, so to speak. Uh, what's going to happen there? Uh, you've also got Trump's trans ban, as they uh, call it in the media today, based on the tweets from this morning. And uh, also Debbie Wasserman Schultz's IT, uh, inter- uh, information technology aid, caught trying to flee the country. A story that you're not going to see much coverage of it on cable news, but we've got an in-depth reporting from an investigative reporter at The Daily Caller joining us to talk about that. And then plus uh, the the war within the State Department over policy. It's the White House and Tillerson versus, well, I don't know if you'd call them deep state, but they're resistant, some people, within this, within state, as we call the State Department. Uh, there's some problems there. We'll talk about that. And then also because it is American Heroes Week, which I should note is a White House, is a White House directive that this was supposed to be American Heroes Week. Last week was... Uh, Made in USA week. This week is American Heroes Week. And uh, there's also a theme for next week. I haven't seen a lot about American Heroes Week, but we'll be doing it here on the show. We'll be joined by uh, an American hero today, tomorrow, and the next day telling us about, well, telling us their stories. So stay tuned for that. Um, But right now, here's what we've got. Oh, the the media is completely focused on the transgender tweets from Trump and the possibility of a transgender uh, transgender ban in the military. Um, and there are different different versions of events as to how we got to those specific Trump tweets. Um, I will tell you what, what what Trump said in them in just a second. But the question that I really want to address here, first and foremost, is. What can we say about whether there's a strategy behind all of this? Because there are some things happening right now that in isolation, you could say it's just Trump uh, dealing with the media siege. It's Trump lashing out. It's Trump being erotic. I I don't know where you are. Depends on the specific issue. And and lots of opinions here are valid because who really knows? Uh, But you have the... uh, Republicans in the Senate struggling mightily with the reality that they have now the power to do something about health care, but not the will. And after years of telling us all 
that they want to repeal and replace Obamacare after all those promises. And I've been detailing them for you because we, we, we need to remember, right? We, they would like us to just move to, well, it's a little bit better. It's Obamacare light. Now they're talking about a skinny repeal. Uh, that's what they're talking about, which is another way of saying not repeal, right? Repeal is a thing you do or do not. Repeal is a light switch, up, down, right? You either are or not. You either on or off. Skinny repeal is a nice way of saying partial repeal, which is another way of saying not repeal. You you either remove a law or you do not, right? You either get rid of the law in its entirety or you do not. They're, They're trying to create this middle ground, which... If that's the best they can do, they should at least tell us that and not try to change the language in some Orwellian version of not news speak, but political speak. Right. That's what they're that's what I see them up to right now. Uh, But is Trump creating space for them? Now, you can argue, I think, that this could be unintentional. But I'm really asking the question, is there a method to the Trumpness here? Is there a strategy behind this? Because the tweets he sent out this morning have taken the focus off of the fact that right now you you don't have 60 votes for the GOP Senate bill on health care. You don't even have 50 votes based on what we've seen today for the GOP health care bill. You can't even get to 50. You can't even get Republicans all on board with it. You can't even get, you know, the majority needed. Never mind all Republicans. You've got a few that are definitely not on board. And we've seen that from the beginning. So they've had this motion to proceed that passed yesterday. But now here we are looking at an actual bill and they're talking about skinny repeal. And they're saying that and there's going to be various iterations of this. And there'll be a lot of message massaging, if you will. There'll be a lot of efforts to try and tell you that what's going on here is not what you it's not what you see. Right. This is what do they what do they do the, the, the thing in Star Wars where they wave the hand you know this is not this is not the repeal you were looking for, uh, that's what's going on here. They're hoping to get their act together or, or I think they are, and Trump's antics if you want to call it that or important starting of a discussion it, it all depends on what you think about the transgender troop ban, uh, and it would be based on his tweets a ban is this. To take the heat off the GOP senators for a moment so they can figure out what the what the heck is going on? Or is this just Trump being Trump? Is it because it creates some momentum for him or not momentum, some credibility for him with the conservative base in preparation for kicking out sessions? I mean, there are theories everywhere right now. You got theories coming out all over the place. And maybe that's just, you know, there's there's some that would say that that's the Trump strategy in and of itself. Just keep everybody guessing. Keep everything moving. Don't let them form a cohesive anti-GOP, anti-Trump narrative right now by just force them to chase around the, so, the, the shiny objects, so to speak. Right. Oh, it's the transgender, uh, the transgender military ban. Oh, wait, no. Are they going to fire Jeff Sessions? Oh, wait, no. It's actually a health care bill. Oh, all of this happening at the same time. This is what Trump tweeted out, by the way. I I should establish that for us as we continue uh, this discussion. You've got Trump at earlier this morning. uh, After consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened 
with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. So that's what Trump put out there. And and it it has led to uh, no surprise, I'm sure, to, to any of you listening. It has led to a media firestorm, a lot of talk about Trump's bigotry and uh, people are throwing around the word bigotry left and right now because of this. And it is, by the way, if you want some of the, the facts, I, I pull them together for you. So just to, to put this into context before we talk about the trans ban, which is, I think, the shorthand a lot of people are using right now for this. Um, and and I'm, I'm also not yet settled on what the theory is or, or which theory I believe most. I've got some inclinations right now about why the president would do this this morning, but it certainly does... It certainly does de facto distract from the Jeff Sessions might be fired talk, and it distracts from the the, the Senate, the GOP Senate in disarray right now, uh, because if they can't pass any bill, which seems like a distinct possibility, I mean, you know, what exactly do we pay them for? Well, what is this all about? Okay. But first on the on the transgender ban, because Trump wrote this this morning, and I should note that already people have started to say this isn't policy, that the president is not, that there will have to be an implementation period here. General Mattis, secretary of defense, the guy running the Pentagon, the military, he was already in the process of a review of the transgender policy. Keep in mind the current military policy on transgender service members just went into or just uh, was announced by Secretary of Defense Ash Carter in 2016. So you're hearing a lot of talk today from the left and from the media about bigotry, and there's a, um, there's a tremendous amount of sanctimony and, um, and, and berating of the opposition uh, of those who are supportive of, of Trump's tweets on this. Meanwhile, for seven of his eight years, or really until his eighth year in office— President Obama, as commander-in-chief, was willing to let the pre the previous policy of no transgender, uh, no transgender recognition and service in the military stand. Right? There, there could be people who were transgender, but they wouldn't be recognized as transgender, and there wouldn't be policies in place uh, to accommodate that within the military ranks. That had been the policy until the Obama administration, until the very end of the Obama administration. Um, but I, I want to do something before we just get into and I've got some uh, I've got a combat veteran going to join us to talk about what this could mean for military readiness. And I am saying right up front that I wonder how much of this is Trump just getting a uh, what what is largely I know people talk about it as an issue of military readiness. But for the left, it's a culture war issue. It's really just about full recognition of transgender individuals as having Special rights, right? No one's saying that transgender people don't have rights, but these are special rights, additional rights, the right to have your condition recognized and accommodated by the military. If the military accommodates it, well, then that's a, a very clear argument, both in law and socially speaking, for it to be completely accommodated up, up and down society and across the board. So that's what's at stake for the left here, because when you when you look at it as a matter of the numbers— and I actually pulled, by the way, this is what I do before I come on air. You know, there's a lot of, I know a lot of people are going to be squawking at you on radio about this. And there are people on the on the televisions going, blah, 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 like they know something about this. Uh, I actually read the, uh, read the Ash Carter policy guidance, the former Secretary of Defense 
it's 72 pages for those who are wondering on how uh, this should be dealt with by um, by the military specifically. I mean, how they should accommodate transgenderism. It's called Commander's Handbook for Transgender Service in the U.S. Military. I read that today because I wanted to really know what the policies were and how this was supposed to be handled. I also pulled up the stats from a RAND study, RAND being a, one of the most revered and, and uh, well-known think tanks in the world, on exactly uh, what we're talking about here in terms of numbers. Uh, military is very large, and many of you listening are either current or former military, I know, but there's a lot of folks in the military. Uh, you have about 1.3 million active component service members, according to this RAND study, uh, roughly speaking, and of that number, you have about, they estimate, uh, between two and 3,000 transgender service members. I mean, they're, they're at the very low end, it's the 1,300. At the very high end of the estimates, it's about 6,600. Uh, but some of them are not seeking gender-related treatment. or, or So some of them are transgender, identify as transgender, but are not actually looking to uh, be accommodated in any way by the military. So that's what that's part of how you get this variation of numbers. But so out of 1.3 million people, the military, I mean, the the media is going into, you know, overdrive. I mean, the media is really upset about this change in policy that at maximum realistically would affect about three or four thousand people in the military now. It's not to denigrate anybody's service who serves this country. I think there are some very worthwhile questions to ask and, and debates to be had over, okay, you know, if you're already serving, uh, should this affect your service? Uh, you know, how, how, do we, how do we deal with this issue? But the response from the left is, I think, what is most politically useful for the Trump administration, because here we have— more evidence that for progressives and for the Democratic Party, social experimentation in the military is uh, a, is something that they're willing to do, possibly at the expense of warfighting capability and military readiness. Uh, we've got a lot more on this, and I also want to go back to the health care issue. Got to talk to you about the Jeff, the, the Sessions. Uh, we're on sort of Sessions watch here to see if he's actually going to get ousted, get fired. Uh, by the way, I think that's not going to happen, just like I said yesterday. I still don't buy it, even though Trump has put out some more stuff on that today on Twitter. I got an absolutely jam-packed show. You, stay with me here. We'll hit all those topics I talked about and more. We'll be right back. This is really a mean-spirited, unpatriotic, and dangerous attack on people who are bravely serving their country right now. All right, we have 18-year-old kids who perform and behave better than the capacity of our actor and commander-in-chief. And somebody who is transgender not serve the country? Is that really what we're looking you at? You know, you can't just declare a class of people is going to get disparate treatment. That is the very definition of discrimination. It was clearly uh, an ill-advised announcement, something that uh, was, was done uh, at the spur of the moment, maybe even, uh, and it's undermining, I, I think, our national defense. There you have a series of people today in the media talking about the Trump transgender tweets. Remember, it's not an official, it's not an official policy enactment, but it is indicative of where the commander-in-chief may move policy when it comes to the Pentagon. By the way, you'll notice they talk about disparate treatment and discrimination. This really comes down to whether someone believes that uh, to be transgender is to be in the midst of dealing with a form of mental illness or an identity that should be uh, should be recognized, uh, accommodated, and in fact even celebrated. And that's the divide here. 
uh, if you look in military regs, and I did today, I looked up some stuff on the uh, DOD website, they have various conditions that would bar one from uh, military service, including uh, depression, and I believe I even saw that uh, ADHD, attention dis- uh, well, whatever, ADD, attention deficit disorder, um, is something that in some instances could be considered a disqualifier for military service. So if you believe that transgenderism is a, a delusion and a form of mental illness, which obviously many people do, then that's a legitimate reason to prevent someone from serving. If you believe that transgenderism is a person's identity and that gender is an identity separate from sex and sexual organs, well, then you obviously think that Trump's tweets are, are way out of line. Uh, I've got a, a, a veteran on the line. Uh, Greg from Oklahoma wants to talk about this. Uh, Greg, thank you very much, man. Appreciate you calling in. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Book. Thanks for having me. Um, and by I, the way, you, you were a combat veteran. I mean, you deployed to Iraq, front lines. You're a guy who's been... So I think that's necessary for this conversation. Go ahead. I mean, necessary to state in absolutely. terms of where you're coming from. Go ahead. No, absolutely, Buck. I think the, the biggest issue is is I'm really tired of progressives using the military as this petri dish for the culture war. Um, you know, having women in combat with different standards. Now we're wanting to push transgendered people into the military. Um, like you said, I had ADHD as a kid and took medication for it when I was like six and seven years old, and I still had to get a waiver to get into the military, even though I'd been 11 years. See, I didn't even know that. There you go. I mean, that that's how strict some of these uh, procedures are, yeah. Absolutely. And what you're doing is setting up a separate set of standards for a particular community. You're essentially protecting this community and you're otherizing them within the combat arms um, community. This is obviously a massive problem. These are people when you go to combat uh, like I did twice, um, you know, sometimes it's really rough and it's going to break even the most mentally and physically strong person. And to have somebody there that's in the unit that doesn't have um, the, the correct capacity to perform at optimal level having some sort of chink in the armor that they will break at some point uh gender dysphoria is something that i think that they should be treated for whether it's um you know just medication and going to see a psychiatrist or having gender reassignment surgery whatever it is i obviously don't care what these people do but having them uh inside the military when the military is just there to close with and kill the enemy as efficiently as possible having this petri dish where we decide what we're going to do and how people are going to live their lives and how we're going to help trans people transition into being um, transgendered, whatever that process is, we're spending time on that instead of spending time on training. Um, And like I said, the otherizing of these people and protecting them in the military is going to be a massive issue. If you have somebody that's, you know, the class pet for the teacher, everybody starts resenting that person because they're getting additional privileges that you're not going to get. If you think about it, somebody... Greg, we, we got we to run yeah. into a break here, man, but I, I do appreciate you calling in. Of course, appreciate your service. Thanks for sharing your perspective, Greg. It's good to hear from somebody who's been downrange and can really talk to this. And uh, thank you, Greg. And team, we'll be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. By the way, team, that thing I was trying to think about before uh, is a Jedi mind trick. I'm obviously... I was going to say I'm obviously not a, a Trekkie, but that would be Star Trek, not Star Wars. I'm just making it worse now. I'm, I'm just making it worse. Uh, but, yeah, a Jedi Jedi mind trick. Uh, a couple of things 
I uh, also wanted to put out there for you. Since the ban on transgender service was was uh, repealed by the Obama administration, 250 service members have applied to change their gender in the military's personnel system. 250 in total. You got to remember 1.3 million act, uh, 1.3 million in the military. Uh, so it's a very, very, very small percentage. Nonetheless, uh, there are issues at stake here of combat readiness and just the direction of the military and of the warfighter overall um, and how politicians are getting involved in all this. I want to bring on a, another combat vet to talk to us about it. We are joined now by our friend Jesse Kelly. He is a Marine Corps combat veteran and former congressional candidate and all-around great guy. Jesse, great to have you. Don't start lying to him about that great guy stuff, Buck. No, you you don't have to tell everybody your secrets just yet, my friend. We're on we're on live radio, so let's just let's just keep it going. Let's get. But I I gotta Jesse's. A, by the way, it was a lot of fun guy to talk to. But I gotta ask him a couple of serious questions here first. Jesse, uh, the Trump Trump put out the the tweets this morning. Uh, you see a lot of people. Well, you know what? Actually, let me have you respond to this. J- Jake Tapper had a lieutenant commander on his show earlier today, and here's what was said. 15 what do you make of politicians who have not volunteered to serve their country, who have tried to avoid military service, telling you that you can't? Uh, I think personnel decisions should really be left up uh, to the secretary and his staff. Uh, we're the ones out there doing the jobs. Um, and that's what it is. Uh, we're already there. We're already serving and it causes a bigger disruption to suddenly change personnel policies uh, than it does for anything else. And uh, just like with any big company, uh, they've all run big companies at some point or in time in their life, and you don't suddenly fire a third of your work, you know, a portion of your workforce. Okay, Jesse, what what would be your response to either Jake Tapper or Lieutenant Commander there or both? Well, he's partially right and he's partially wrong. One, it does cause a disruption if you all of a sudden start cutting people out. But right now, there's no intention to cut any people out or kick any people out. This was a ban on new people joining. And the only reason there's a disruption is because Obama decided to play politics with the whole thing. And it was a completely political game to even allow to have it in the first place. This doesn't happen in the military. You can have all kinds of universal acceptance and love in society, and you should, but that is not what the military is about. The military is about killing America's enemies, period. And whatever helps you get there, that's what you do. Do you think that having uh, transgender soldiers, having transgender service members in frontline positions, in small combat uh, positions, uh, any number of places around the world, um, do, you, do you think that that may be, uh, that's a problem? I mean, you think that would hurt, uh, hurt morale, hurt readiness? Of course it would. It's a horrible idea. Having been there, I'm telling you, I've watched combat break men. It breaks men. The stress of it is unbearable. And these people, they're not people we need to hate. They're not people that deserve our scorn. But they are people who are going through something. And the smallest of your issues, they come out on the front lines. The smallest things that are wrong. The stress of getting shot at, of going hungry, of being hot, miserable, away from your family, it eats at everybody, the strongest of the strong. And if you're dealing with that issue mentally at the time, it can ruin unit cohesion. It can get people killed easily. 
We had guys attempt suicide when I was there. These were guys who were, you looked at them and thought they were put together. We don't need to be importing these things into our military. It's a horrible idea. We don't have to apologize for having standards. We have standards for weight, fitness, everything else. We should have mental stability standards. Right. We're speaking to Jesse Kelly here as a Marine Corps combat veteran, former congressional candidate. Jesse, that's one issue that I think has already come up, which is that there are mental uh, mental health requirements and, and your mental health history before you join the service is part of the consideration for whether you can join or not. We had uh, a combat veteran call in, a caller just before, a frequent listener to the show, saying that, look, his his uh, his ADD even came up when, when he was getting ready to join, and he had to get a waiver for it. So when people start throwing out terms like, like discrimination and bigot because of this policy. I, I think that does a disservice to the discussion, no matter what one thinks. It does. And they discriminate and should discriminate for a million different things, for asthma, for eyesight, for an old football knee surgery. For and that, And they should. The military is not some all-inclusive club to make you feel better about yourself or your little quirks or anything else. The military is there to protect the United States of America by killing our enemies. That is the purpose of the military. It is not there to make you feel better about yourself. Jesse Kelly, Marine Corps veteran, former congressional candidate. Uh, appreciate you for uh, joining us on the show, my friend, and also appreciate your service. And uh, let's get a drink sometime here in New York, all right? We'll do it, Buck. I appreciate you, brother. Absolutely. You too, man. Thanks for calling in. Uh, oh, since I-, I wanted to get various perspectives from those who have been on the front lines of combat on the show. So we're just going through it this hour with a number of, of veterans. Now we have um, Carl Higby on the line now. He's a former Navy SEAL, Trump supporter, and political commentator. Carl, thanks for joining. Well, thanks for having me, Buck. Trump, you, I mean, uh, pardon me, Carl, you were a uh, an early Trump, <laughs> you're not Trump, you were an early yeah. Trump supporter, and uh, you're also a former Navy SEAL. Um, first off, what was, what's with the president tweeting this out this morning? You think, is, is this just to get the media going with a misdirection, or is this to get the, the conversation started? What's he doing? I think he's getting the conversation started, Buck. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, he, he's, he takes the military very, very seriously, and uh, I, I think this is something that, you know, people who are advocates for this transgender thing in the military are, are don't take it as seriously as him, and it bothers him. I think he takes it to heart. Now, you served. You were in theater. You were Navy SEAL. What do you think about—I'm seeing all this stuff now. Uh, you know, CNN has people going on there saying that there are a lot of people who are already serving who are transgendered, that we should encourage more people who are transgendered to serve. But I also see various warfighters who have a media profile or people who— uh, speak out on issues affecting the military, saying that, no, there are real concerns here about unit cohesion and about combat effectiveness. W- what do you think about all that as somebody who's actually been on the front lines in combat? Yeah, uh, so the military is not a social experiment, and the left needs to stop using it as such. This is the problem here, is if you want to be, I'm not saying don't be transgender, like it's not for me, but if you want to go do it, fine, go do whatever you want. But here's the fundamentals. When I came back from Iraq in 2009, I have skin cancer in my family history. So I wanted to get examined by a dermatologist by the military. They refused to get, send me to a dermatologist, but yet they're going to give somebody fake boobs. I mean, this is this does they're going to give a man fake boobs. I mean, that that doesn't make sense. But additionally, the problem here is I'm not willing to sacrifice the comfort of 99.9% of the military for the sake of the 0.01% because it makes the military lose effectiveness. 
I read the guidance that uh, former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter put out there, and there are even these these scenarios that they discuss. And one of the scenarios is you have a a male transitioned to female who is ser- you know serving in the military in theater somewhere, and there's a problem with shower usage. And the, the guidance is basically try to keep people from getting upset about it and see if you can make some accommodation. But maybe you might have somebody with male body parts showering in theater with females in the military. That that might, in fact, right. have to happen, according to the old Pentagon guidance from 2016. Here's my litmus test for what should and should not be allowed in the military. How does this affect the military's ability to put bullets in bad guys? And the fact is, it does not make it any better. And if that's the answer, don't do it. Look, here's the thing. I was not I, – I was, I, I was for the don't ask, don't tell. When they repealed it, I was, I was not pleased. But then again, if I was – king of the world tomorrow, I would not undo it because it would add further instability to reinstitute something like that. So I do things on the best interest of the force, and that's how I believe. This is not in the best interest in the force. This is in the best interest of some social experiment to gain social, social ground in the, in the election. Now, Carl, what you'll commonly see for, for anybody who's out there trying to make the case in, in favor of Trump going back to what had been Pentagon policy for as long as there had been a Pentagon until a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, they'll say, well, well, you didn't serve and they'll, they'll run somebody else, not you, but you know, one did not serve and then they'll run somebody else up on TV or wherever and they'll say, well, if you didn't serve, you need to shut your mouth about this. You were a SEAL. You're telling me this. You're SEAL brothers. Uh, if you had to tell me what you think they think on this, is there near unanimity or are there some who believe, no, no, we should have transgender SEALs? There's some, there, I'll be honest. There's some. No, I want you to be honest. Yeah. There, there's some that are really just not concerned about it, but the vast majority are. The vast majority of, of people that I've spoken with in the military think this is a terrible idea. So this is not just me being a pundit trying to raise, raise hell over it. it. It is a real problem. We're speaking to Carl Higby. He's a Trump supporter, political commentator, former Navy SEAL. Uh, Carl, if I could just switch gears here for a second, um, what is your assessment of how the, the White House is doing right now and, and what is what is going on? I mean, you're hearing a lot about sessions. you got the health care bill. People are trying to say that this is a mess, but is there a method to the madness or what's what's happening? I do believe there is, and I'm not privy to any inside info, I'll say that. But I, I, here's what I believe. The Democrats attacked Jeff Sessions so harshly when he when he was trying to get um, confirmed by the Senate. Now you look at Trump is going. Trump released a couple tweets about him, and now Jeff Sessions is held in the highest honors and like an angel to the left because you know bad boy Trump is trying to demonize him. This look very carefully at this because I anticipate that he that Trump has done this on purpose in order to get the left to say, wow, you know. Sessions is such a great guy, and Trump's so bad. Watch, Sessions might come out and try to indict Hillary. He might come out with some other stuff. You you never know. But I, I would anticipate that this is a very calculated move. And it, it does – it has forced a lot of people out there in, in media land because in the short term it's useful to use as a, as a cudgel, as, as a means of attacking Trump and his White House. They're now on record saying that Sessions is a great guy, as you say. And while that exactly. didn't stop them from flip-flopping on someone like Comey, for example, it may be interesting to see what the media rap is on Sessions in a month or two, especially as I know he's ramping up the leak investigations. Trump's just working on discrediting these people one by one. It's unbelievable. They, you know, they get them to eat. first they hate Sessions, now they love him. They, this country, though, and Eric Trump said this best the other day on Fox. He said that 
the left would rather see this country implode than Trump succeed. I think that's true. Uh, I think that's uh, that's we're seeing that with the media. We're seeing that with people on the left who have decided that it is uh, in the best it is in the best interest of, of the survival of this republic to completely undermine, smear, tarnish and destroy the president. It's pretty scary stuff. Mm-hmm. Carl Higby, everybody, former Navy SEAL, Trump supporter, political commentator. You can go to carlhigby.com for more of his. Carl, thanks for making the time and thank you for your service. Thanks, guys. Uh, Team, we are going to be running into a break here in just a moment, Uh, but I want to know what you think about all of this, both on the, the, in general, the trans ban has been called the media, as well as Trump's strategy behind this, the Sessions criticism, everything else that's happening right now with this White House and with the uh, news cycle. 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. I want to shift our focus from the uh, wisdom uh, or not of the uh, transgender Ben, whether that's what should happen for the Pentagon, I've just had it. We've had now three veterans join this hour. We've talked to them about, and they're all people who served on, on the front line in combat. What they think about it? Um, there, I should note, there are of course uh, other veterans who have spoken out about this, including. Uh, Senator Tammy uh, Duckworth, who said today, when my Black Hawk helicopter was shot down in Iraq, I didn't care if the American troops risking their lives to help save me were gay, straight, transgender, or anything else. Um, all that mattered was that they didn't leave me behind. Uh, and and you've, had, you've had others speaking out about this and saying that it's uh, discriminatory and un-American, what Trump treated this morning. O- other veterans. So I, don't, I had veterans join that I know who are friends of mine who have uh, combat experience. And I do think that's also, by the way, where the that's where the focus of the debate quickly goes. Uh, it's it's one thing to be uh, serving stateside uh, on on a base. I mean, the accommodations for transgender service members would be e- easier to deal with in a lot of ways, just as a logistics issue. But once you're talking about you're talking about being out there. Uh, on a military base in theater, uh, things change. And once it's just you and, and your fire team, and once you get down to small unit uh, tactics and day-to-day living, and that, and that's what I wanted to reflect here in, in the show over the course of this last hour. Um, but lawmakers are on the, the Democrats are, are obviously freaking out about this. But that's where I want to transition now into, okay, well, what's the strategy? What are the politics of this? Why did Trump do this? Because it he set the news cycle today with these tweets this morning. It, it became the primary. I mean, I actually was just walking over to, to see a friend, uh, see some friends over in the in the vicinity of CNN today. And because I was over there, I happened to bump into some CNN people I know. And they're, oh, did you did you see this these Trump tweets? You know, they're all all flustered about it. I'm like, well, y- yeah, I'm gonna go now. I gotta go prepare for my radio show. Good to see you, CNN friends. Um, but I, they weren't the only ones who were kind of flustered, or at least taken by surprise, it seemed, on this. And uh, you had a reporter, I forget who for these days, he's still at Fox, I don't know, Major Garrett was asking this question about, it seemed like the Pentagon was surprised by all this. Why was the Pentagon caught so surprised this morning by the president's tweets on this? Yeah, as I said before, that the president's national security team was part of this consultation. You mentioned yourself that there have been ongoing conversations. Uh, when this one when the president issue, made the de- right when the president made the decision yesterday uh, the Secretary of Defense was immediately informed as were the rest of the national security team that had been part of this ongoing conversation uh, so yeah, people are saying look we had Mattis doing this review the review is not up until I think December um, and you had a, a whole bunch of 
uh, you know, of course, pe- people weighing in to say, well, th- this looks like it must be th- this must be tied to something else. One of the theories and like I, I don't know if this is true or not. Uh, or I should say one of the reports. It's not really just a theory. It's reported, and they they attach their name to it, so I'll give them credit for it. Politico. Politico was saying that the the Republican House was working on a bill, and the bill had border funding in it, but there were some defense hawks in the House who wanted the— wanted there to be no money for transgender— uh, surgery reassignment in the defense budget. And for th- those who are wondering how much money are we talking about here, according to the RAND study that everyone's been looking at today, about you're looking at about uh, six to eight million, they think a year would be spent on transgender issues. Now that's per capita or per service member. It's obviously a lot more expensive. I think the figure I saw was f- 12 or 14 times more expensive for the uh, health care costs of estimated health care costs of a transgender service member than just a, a non-transgender service member. But because there's so few of them, it's not a lot of money. But some in the House, according to this political reporting, wanted no money at all for that because I don't think the service should be doing that. And that then became an issue that got raised to the president's attention by some House members, and he was w- concerned that it might affect the bill, the uh, the budget bill, and we're talking about a budgetary bill here, that would have had funding for a wall at the southern border, and so Trump just decided to go out there and say, you know what, n- n- none of this transgender service stuff in the military, full stop, and he decided to do that on his own. Is that what happened? I- I- I'm not the one, it's not my sources, but this is political reporting. That's certainly out there as a theory. But what about the uh, the Trump Jedi mind trick approach, as in Trump has a bunch of other things going on and he is using this as a distraction with the media or, well, we'll see. We'll talk about it. And I want to hear what you think, too. 844-900-BUCK. What, 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 is, what is Trump's strategy right now? What is the game this White House is, uh, is into these days? That and more coming up next hour. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. All right, so Donald Trump gave a, well, had a rally last night, gave a speech at the rally. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a bit about what he said there and how he's trying to refocus on the agenda. We even have a little bit of uh, evidence of that agenda at work to talk about. Some news breaking today on that. I will return us to the discussion, though, about health care, uh, all this back and forth over Jeff Sessions, cleaning up the uh, the swamp, which Trump now says is a is a cesspool, I think, is a later, or a sewer, maybe even. Uh, we'll talk about how that will work or how it could work and cracking down on leaks. Also, the IT Aid to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was fleeing the country, caught at the uh, caught at the airport, I believe, uh, caught with his passport trying to get to Pakistan. And uh, what could be going on there? A lot of shadiness, but not a lot of clarity. But we have somebody joining who's been following that very closely, investigative reporter. So uh, much, much to discuss. But first, let's get into uh, all the things going on with President Trump yesterday at this uh at this rally that he held, first of all, he he said that uh, he said that he could be the most 
the most presidential president I think ever. Something along those lines. He, he, which of course enrages all of his critics. That's that's kind of fun. That's kind of fun stuff when he does that. Um, but he was at this rally, and uh, people started chanting. Well, CNN, I'll say stinks, but that's not what they said. So- I'm here this evening to cut through the fake news filter and to speak straight to the American people. Fake news. Fake, fake, fake news. <laughs> Channing, CNN. Uh, I can. I mean, I can. CNN, CNN sucks is what they're. Pardon me, but that's what they're. That's what they're all chanting there. Uh, so yeah, Trump was holding was holding a rally, and uh, it was. Oh, here we go. More president. I, I thought we had this out, but he said he could be more presidential than any. Well, here's what he said. Political correctness for me is easy. Sometimes they say he doesn't act presidential. And I say, hey, look, great schools, smart guy. It's so easy to act presidential, but that's not going to get it done. In fact, I said, it's much easier, by the way, to act presidential than what we're doing here tonight, believe me. And I said, with the exception of the late, great Abraham Lincoln, I can be more presidential than any president that's ever held this office, that I can tell you. Now, of course, the crowd there loves it. I I think what he's saying, uh, or or what he's getting at there, is that if if he succeeds, if the Trump agenda works, then all this stuff about, quote, being presidential doesn't matter. Um, and that and that if he's a great president, nobody will care if he was a president who was speaking in a in a manner that we tend to think of as presidential or acting with the uh, the the courteousness. And uh, uh, I don't know, I, I don't even know how you describe the 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 versions of presidential that the media would like to see from the or the version of presidential media would like to see from this particular president but on the issue of agenda and i told you i have a news item for you that i think we should dive into a bit um with regard to jobs but he talked about a few things Uh, first of all and i'm I'm not forgetting health care but i don't have a lot see here's part of the problem i want to talk to you about health care and get into all the latest on what the but the Senate's kind of like we, we don't know. Uh, it's not clear what's going to happen there. So I, I can't critique or, or go into the specifics too much of a bill when we're not even really sure what the bill will look like. And there'll be all this this series of votes that you can expect the Senate to hold that gets people on the record one way or another. This is largely about seeing where the senators are. Right. This is almost like polling the Senate. It's not so much about lawmaking yet, or at least until they pass something. Uh, And I'm not even sure what it is. No one's sure what it is. So while health care is important, I've spent a lot of time on that. I I don't want to just be looking into the health care debate at the expense of the other areas of policy that this president should be focusing and refocusing uh, on for the benefit of the American people. So to that end, at the rally last night, he discussed, for example, something that gets me very excited 
Not that I make not that I make enough money to get excited about this in the sense of like I'm going to be you know, swimming around like Scrooge McDuck in a giant vault full of gold coins. Scrooge McDuck. It's a great Ducktales is a great cartoon. I miss it. Uh, I'm sure it's on one of those channels that runs all the old cartoons. But I just think that in principle, the tax code needs a massive overhaul. I think that it, the tax code is uh, overly redistributive, unfair. I think that the whole notion of it being a progressive tax or that progressive taxation is what we have is false. What we have is is high taxes on high earners, which is not the same as high wealth individuals. If we really were going to be progressive, we would have a wealth tax. Of course, that would terrify all the coastal elites who don't mind that they're, in many cases, unearned earnings in the sense that it's just money they get from what they already have. Capital gains tax, of course, is uh, applicable there, but they don't mind paying taxes on that because they're already so wealthy that their overall expenses are covered, right? So tax reform needs to happen. It's a question of, dare I say, fairness. And it's also a question of jumpstarting the U.S. economy, getting more hiring at better wages because better jobs. And Trump mentioned this last night. My administration is working every single day to heed and honor the will of the voters. That includes working on one of the biggest tax cuts in American history. And actually, if I get what I want, it will be the single biggest tax cut in American history. I love this rhetoric. I, I like where he's going with this. I, I want big tax cuts. The government spends too much money because the government takes too much money. But I also have to put out this early warning. There are a lot of Republicans who talk a tough game about tax cuts, but it's really just tax cuts for special interest that they want to have supporting them at re-election time, and the American people somehow get left out of this. Because the, the, real, the real money, and this is, you, you go, you look at people who have crunched the numbers on this, the tax base is not super high earners. That's, you could take every dollar made my people in the 1%. It wouldn't even, it wouldn't even put, a, put a dent in the federal debt, right? I mean, it wouldn't even begin to really chip away at it. You could take every dollar made by the, uh, especially when you're talking about the truly high earners, it's the 0.01% who have seen stratospheric increases in wealth in the last few decades in this country. But as much as class warfare plays well for the Democrats, it's a distraction, the reality is that the middle class, which we could also just say is people who are earning a living and trying to support themselves and their families or just themselves, but th those who work, and we used to refer to the working class, and I think that's an unfair or, or that, that's an inaccurate way to describe it, right? It's just there's not a working class. They're just people who work, working Americans who could not lose their job tomorrow and not have it be a problem. I mean, that's really who we're talking about here, right? People who could lose their job tomorrow and never have to work again, I'm not worried about them because they're not worried about themselves. People who are working for a paycheck that they need to support themselves, to support their families, that's who we should be concerned about. That's who the president hopefully is concerned about, and I believe that he is. I believe that that's central to why he was even willing to take this job as president in the first place. But will they benefit from a tax cut? Well, there are only certain ways that that can be the case. Simplification certainly helps. Lower rates would help, although the rates won't get that much lower, because I think that there are a lot of Republicans that, you know, they, they play this game of, yeah, we, we, we need lower taxes. But, oh, what are we going to do about the debt? Well, 
maybe the government should start spending less money. You know, they want to tell you this is like the health care debate. They want to tell you that everyone's going to get coverage, but that you don't have to have an individual mandate. Well, that doesn't work. You know, I'm talking about Republicans now. Forget about Democrats. They're off in, you know, socialist stand. They're crazy. But the Republicans have problems here, honesty problems, because they want to tell us all, oh, sure. And I'm talking about the Congress now. Yeah, yeah, we want a tax cut for you guys. But, I mean, we can't increase we can't increase the deficit. You know, so that's going to be a problem. We can't put too much strain on the deficit. Oh, so, well, why don't we cut spending? Oh, no, no, we can't cut spending. Well, which is it going to be? If you can't put more strain on the deficit and you're not willing to cut spending, you're not going to give us tax cuts, right? We see this just goes in a circle. And by the time we figure out what the truth is, they're hoping that it doesn't affect their reelection concerns. This is why people have such a low view overall of the Congress, because they're all making promises all the time, including, I think, the repeal of Obamacare, that many of them have no intention of keeping. But Trump is out there pushing. He's out there selling. He's out there uh, cajoling, encouraging, uh, doing everything he can to, I think, create the political momentum to get some of these agenda items through. And we see something happening today that I think the Trump administration sh- uh, should certainly take a, a, a little victory lap. This isn't huge, but it's it's an indicator, I think. And even on CNN, they're reporting this. Ooh, look at that. Apple supplier Foxconn says it's going to build a Wisconsin factory, and in fact, it's uh, it's substantial. Uh, now, Foxconn is best known for making iPhones, uh, but from what we see here, it looks like Foxconn has agreed to uh, agreed to to not make these things in the U to to a ten billion dollar investment. It's going to set up factories in Wisconsin, and it's a display. Uh, display panel plant. They make LCDs, liquid crystal displays, the stuff on your on your computer, stuff on your TV and, and your uh, iPhone, um, and that could create up to thirteen thousand jobs. So here we have. Remember that that was always one of the uh, one of the discussions that would come up over whether U.S. manufacturing could return. They'd say, well, what would it cost to make an iPhone in the United States? Well, under current regulations, it would be much more expensive than what you're used to paying if you have an iPhone. But if we change some regulations, create some incentives, maybe we could bring back some of that, or could bring some of that manufacturing here. Um, And in this case, it looks like, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Wisconsin, if it gets these factories, and Foxconn Technology Group does invest the $10 billion, uh, there may be a $3 billion subsidy from the state's taxpayers here. But this could have a big impact on state elections, and it could also start to show that maybe Trump's enthusiasm, encouragement, deal-making, and just change in tone towards the private sector, towards U.S. manufacturing, might have real measurable impact, might have effects, positive ones, on the economy and on jobs. So don't expect the the media to put this in the context of, wow, this could just be the first of many. They're going to say, eh, it hasn't happened yet. It might never happen. Foxconn says this stuff in the past. Okay, well, are we we going to see this at least as encouraging, and are we going to give credit where it's due? So here we have Trump saying tax cuts are coming. I hope he's right. Congress obviously has to act there. So he's telling us there's going to be tax cuts. Will the Congress come through? He's also, of course, always talking about jobs, and with this Foxconn announcement, it looks like some of that's happening. Uh, so, 
we also I, I'm hoping to get to uh, sanctuary cities. By the way, let me let me talk sanctuary cities, and then we'll get into the Jeff Sessions situation and uh, the late. We'll maybe return to healthcare. And uh, like I said, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the uh, IT guy fleeing to Pakistan, trying to flee to Pakistan. We'll hit all these things. We got a lot of topics still lined up here, team. Eight four four nine hundred buck. Eight four four. 900-2825 on the lines if you would like to call in, weigh in on any of these topics or anything else on your mind. We'll be back in just a few. If you've got a 401k, IRA, or pension plan, I've got some bad news for you. This is Brett Kitchen, and the IRS wants you to think these qualified plans are the best way to save for retirement. They give you a tax break when you contribute. Sounds good, right? Wrong. A qualified plan could be a tax disaster when you retire. With $18 trillion in debt, taxes are already going up. Imagine paying a top tax rate of over 90% like the 1960s. There's a better way. It's an alternative the ultra-rich use that beats the pants off your IRA or 401k. It's been around for years. Your money grows tax deferred has no taxes in retirement and no income taxes when you die. Plus, you can grow your money potential double digits with no risk of losing money when the market crashes. If the market tanks like 2008, you lose nothing. Call Wealth Beyond Wall Street now at 800-908-1616 to talk to a specialist and get a free copy of my brand new book, Wealth Beyond Wall Street, to protect yourself from taxes and crashes. No credit card required. Call 800-908-1616. That's 800-908-1616. 1-800-908-1616. One by one, we're finding the 
illegal gang members, drug dealers, thieves, robbers, criminals, and killers. And we're sending them the hell back home where they came from. And once they are gone, we will never let them back in, believe me. The predators and criminal aliens who poison our communities with drugs and prey on innocent young people, these beautiful, beautiful, innocent young people, will find no safe haven anywhere in our country. And you've seen the stories about some of these animals. They don't want humans because it's too fast and it's not painful enough. So they'll take a young, beautiful girl 16, 15, and others, and they slice them and dice them with a knife because they want them to go through excruciating pain before they die. And these are the animals that we've been protecting for so long. Well, they're not being protected any longer, folks. And that is why my administration is launching a nationwide crackdown on sanctuary cities. American cities should be sanctuaries for law-abiding Americans, for people that look up to the law, for people that respect the law, not for criminals and gang members that we want the hell out of our country. President Trump there last night out in Ohio at his rally talking about sanctuary cities and the uh, the criminals, specifically, usually he cites uh, the incredibly violent uh, gang, uh, MS-13, Mara Salvatrucha, uh, they have been involved in, in horrific incidents across the country. I know even some in, in the, the D.C. area. I mean, they're, they're a gang with, with a long reach into this country, and uh, they, President Trump is saying he's going to send them, he's going to send them back. He's going to send them from whichever country of origin they uh, come from. And this sanctuary cities fight is going to be a a big one in the courts, I think. Um, I think that you're going to see this uh, be a place where, once again, the Democrat Party is exposed for what it is, because they're going to have to have, in places like New York and California, you're going to have law enforcement officers in the sense, not like cops, but law enforcement in the sense of state attorneys general and and uh, and local prosecutors offices and, and probably even, yes, some local uh, local police department chiefs and, and senior brass are going to come out and say that they will not comply with the federal government's request for help in dealing with uh, sanctuary city or in, in dealing with illegal aliens because of sanctuary city policies. You know, there's been some coverage of it, I will say, because of just what a horrific story it is. But earlier this week, uh, right outside, uh, well, it was in a in a parking lot in Texas, uh, they found 10, uh, well, I think there were close to 100 people in there. There, there were at least dozens of people in the truck, uh, in this tractor trailer, but 10 of them died. And it was a human smuggling operation. And people were jammed into the back of a a cargo truck, a tractor trailer, uh, with no real light and no no water, nothing. You read the stories about it, it's heartbreaking. I mean, you have kids in there, women and children, people who are dying from uh, dying from heat exposure, um, dying from dehydration. And it went to over 100 degrees in this tractor trailer 10 people dead the uh, driver of the truck 
is facing at, at least life in prison. I think actually under statute he could face the the death penalty here for this human trafficking that that ended with many people dead. And you know you have to also look at the broader policies in this country of what's going on. Why would individuals take that such a such a terrible risk? Um, why would they take that risk to get into this country? Well, they have a belief that if they can make it into a sanctuary jurisdiction in the United States, they're they're home free. That's it. There's very, very little chance that they will be deported. And part of a, dare I say, comprehensive immigration policy has to be not just border enforcement per se, meaning that catching people at the border and returning them to their country of origin as they try to cross in illegally, but also interior enforcement, the work of immigrations and customs enforcement. Uh, this means that people who come across law enforcement's radar have been arrested, even for non-immigration-related crimes, should be reported to Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. That's that's currently what I mean, Congress passed a statute saying just that. And some sanctuary jurisdictions are refusing. Uh, others are refusing to hold illegal aliens who are there on detainers uh, or, or, or who are asked to be kept under detainer request. And... I should also note that the whole notion of referring to undocumented immigrants, I mean, immigration is a process. It is a legal process. So the moment you start to say immigrant, even illegal immigrant, uh, you are conferring a a pro, you're, you're conferring a legitimacy on the act of coming into this country that it that does not deserve as a matter of law. So while illegal alien has fallen out of favor as a term, particularly on the left, for obvious reasons, the moment you start, I mean, undocumented immigrant is just is just farcical as as a term. Uh, but even illegal immigrant suggests, well, but you, if you're an immigrant, then you're going through the process. Um, illegal alien is one who is in the country in violation of law. And if you have a sanctuary city that refuses to help the federal government in this regard, it is aiding and abetting lawlessness. That's just what's happening. And when that is allowed to continue, you're going to have people that are trying to get into the country illegally, including through very dangerous, very dangerous means to themselves. And there will be loss of life. Hundreds of people every year die coming into this country illegally. So we need to look at this comprehensively. We'll be back uh, in just a few. Stay with me. Our lines lit in here. Uh, David in Florida on WFLF. Hey, David. Hey, how you doing today? I'm good, sir. Thank you for calling in. My theory on why we can't get anything done on health care is it doesn't affect Congress. You know, they have the best health care plan on the planet. And, you know, if it affected them, they would work probably day and night to get the best plan out there for everybody. Well, I do think it was very telling, David, that back in the early days when Obamacare was getting passed, Congress, even the Democrats were like, well, I mean, we don't want to have to have Obamacare, so we're exempt from this. And, and and the other thing, my theory is, you know, a lot of these guys in Congress, even if you vote them out, they still they go out of office and they still retain their salaries and their benefits. So where's the incentive to do a good job and to give a damn? <laughs> uh, I mean, they, if somebody told you, you know, you come to work and I'm going to give you 150 grand a year and then you leave or you're going to be replaced, but I'm still going to give you 150 grand a year in your insurance. I mean, most people are not going to do a good job and not really going to care. I, I think that Congress does. Someone needs to, uh, metaphorically speaking, light a fire and, and get things going here. I mean, it's uh, it's not enough to just 
hope that Congress will act. I think they need to, to hear from the American people. I think they need to, we need to light up the switchboard over there and because I'm about to get into what's going on. It, it is not good, David, what's happening with the Senate Republicans on health care. It's not good, man. Shields high, though. Thank you for calling in. Uh, look, P- POTUS, uh, POTUS, pardon me. Well, that's what we can call him. But the president, President Trump last night, said the following about Democrats. It's time for Democrats to stop resisting. That's their term, resist, resist. They have to do, finally, what's right for the American people but probably we'll do it ourselves. Okay, and I'm with them on that. And they're doing everything they can to obstruct. Now, Republicans tried to slow down and obstruct Obama's agenda. I I don't think that they were using the equivalent of, like, congressional bathroom breaks in order to do it, but, you know, which is what the, the Democrats are looking for, every procedural trick in the book and refusing to staff and put through uh, Trump nominees for political appointee positions. I'll be talking to you later on in the show about what's going on with the State Department and Rex Tillerson and the internal policy revolt against Tillerson in the White House at, at State, at Foggy Bottom. No surprise, by the way. No surprise at all that that's happening. Uh, my my experience with the, the folks at Foggy Bottom is always they think very highly of themselves. Oh, hello, Foggy Bottom. Uh and also, I said we'd talk to Debbie, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, ITA. That's coming up, too. I just want to keep that out there. So um, make sure that uh, we do hit that story. We will. Uh, but so Trump is saying Democrats need to stop resisting. OK, fine. Here's my problem. Uh, it's not Democrats that are in the way right now on health care. It is Republicans. They had today. I mentioned this at the very start of the show, and I wanted to return to it. I know we're, we're bouncing around a lot today. I'm trying to make sure we keep a structure here for our topics, but I'm I'm fired up and I'm moving all over the place. Uh, they had a straight line repeal, a, a straight repeal vote, and it was 55 to 45 against the against the amendment. Seven Republicans opposed it. The uh, 46 Democrats and two independent senators all voted against the measure. Seven Republicans in the Senate would not go along with a straight repeal. Um, so. The straight repeal amendment was offered up by Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. So now now we know. I mean, there's no you don't have full repeal. Um, Here's uh, here's who voted in opposition. Republicans Susan Collins of Maine, Shelley Capito of West Virginia, John McCain of Arizona, Rob Portman of Ohio, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Dean Heller of Nevada. Seven Republicans. I mean, almost, almost a fifth. I mean, maybe I'm pushing that a little bit, but a good chunk of the Senate GOP membership not willing to go forward on an Obamacare repeal. What to do about this? I suppose they figure that in their home states, they will be rewarded for this. Or maybe they just think this was the principal thing to do. I have a feeling if we go back, certainly, and uh, look at some of these senators and their records and their public pronouncements on Obamacare, I have a feeling that they were all about repeal and replace when that was uh, when that was politically profitable for them, when that was the way to go. And now here they are saying they won't go along with the repeal vote. Okay. Meanwhile, you've got this going on. 
and the Democrats are just openly talking about single payer. This is the last gasp, but we're going through now is the last gasp for private health insurance in America, as far as I'm concerned. If we can't make this work with the private health insurance industry, we start moving closer to a Medicare model. From my point of view, Medicare has a lot of positive things uh, to offer the American people. How many folks say, darn it, now I qualify for Medicare? Most of them say, hooray, I don't have to worry about pre-existing conditions. I paid into it. I can get the best hospitals and doctors, and I have peace of mind. That's what people are looking for in health insurance. And if the private health insurance industry can't make the current approach work, we're moving closer and closer to the single-payer option. I should note that I mean, that was uh, Democratic whip, uh, whip uh, Dick Durbin. This we were, we were told that that was not what Democrats wanted at the time, right? And that Obama, at the, when they were trying to push through Obamacare, was aware of the political reality of the time and it was such that it would not have been feasible to sell to the American people a single-payer system because it sounds too much like socialized medicine or moves too much in the direction of socialized medicine. As listeners of this show know, single-payer is not, in fact, socialized medicine. Socialized medicine is what they have in the U.K., and it's where you have the government in control of the hospitals, the doctors, the actual care providers are government employees, the VA in this country is what socialized medicine in the Western European developed world context would be like. And those of you who have had extensive experience with the VA, I'm sure, would have all kinds of stories to share with us about what that means. But that's just even talking about the efficacy of delivering care, the effect of the ability to deliver care through a socialized medicine system, never mind the expense, and the expense is vast. It is ruinously expensive. People say, oh, well, the U.K. is not uh, is, is not completely underwater, and, you know, look at what's going on over there. Well, first of all, what would it be like if they didn't have a—what would the U.K.'s economy be like if they did not have uh, the healthcare system that they do? And, and they also do, by the way, and this is true in Canada as well— the private health care markets uh, pop up and do exist alongside because people who have money don't want to be stuck in that system. So, and I think that would probably happen here as well. But we're not even going to a socialized medicine uh, debate just yet. Well, we, where we are now is if Republicans can't do anything about Obamacare, how can they make the argument against single payer? You see, you'll notice Democrats are all in agreement right now that there are problems with Obamacare. They want to fix it. How do they want to fix it? More money. More money, in a sense, would fix it. More money is just another way of getting us closer to, well, if we're going to be spending all this money on, if the government's going to be spending all this money on health care, why not just have the government spending the money on health care as in writing the checks for all of us to health care providers as they do with Medicare? Single payer. Problems with that, of course. Well, I mean, the the expense of this would just be uh, would be completely uh, un would be impossible to bear that burden financially for the country. Which I, I guess Democrats just figure no one will crunch the numbers or nobody will care, or or maybe that it's so popular to have someone else paying your health care bills that it won't matter what the cost is. Uh, we saw California look at this recently, and it was. Over, I think it was over $300 billion. But it was bigger than their entire budget. To get to single payer in one state was bigger than the entire state budget, all of it combined. 
schools, schools, police, fire, everything, transportation, administrations, all that stuff, everything. So, yeah, it would be really, really pricey. But Democrats are speaking about it openly. Um, And you'll notice that, unfortunately, it's pretty good tactics on their part. I think it's because they don't really have an effective they don't have particularly effective spokespersons right now in elected office for health care. That's one part of it. But also, I think they just want to allow Republicans to stumble, stumble and trip and make a mess of things in front of the American people on this health care bill. This is the uh, the reality here is that Republicans are doing all the work for the Democrats right now. They didn't pass repeal. Doesn't look like they're going to. Maybe they try a skinny repeal, which is a, another way of saying uh, pared down Obamacare or, you know, slim down. They call it skinny repeal. Slim down Obamacare bill. Um, and they promise in the future. Next, next time they'll be strong. Next time they'll be principled. It'll really happen. I just... I don't see it happening. Um, and the effects of this in the midterms have to be profound. You'd have to think that if Republicans don't pass anything, uh, well, what's what's the—they've got a unified—they've got an across-the-board GOP majority, House and Senate, and they've got a Republican in the, in the White House who will sign whatever the Congress puts in front of them on health care. If they can't get anything done, I, I, don't even, I don't even know how they spin that. Other than we are we are incompetent and we lie to you and, you know, vote for us anyway. Maybe that's the bumper sticker some of them will go with. I wouldn't be surprised at this point. I am going to get into uh, this whole Sessions situation. Actually, you know what? I'll do that now. Okay. So, and maybe I'll talk a little bit more in the next segment and got to drop some things on the, uh, on the cutting room floor here as we go through. Too much to talk about today. So, Jeff Sessions is... In the midst of a, uh, it's a, it's a rough week for the attorney general. Although I should note that this is the most criticism of uh, the most criticism of Donald Trump that I've seen from really true Trump supporters has been over this Jeff Sessions issue so far. Um, here's here's what uh, he wrote earlier this morning. Donald Trump wrote on Twitter, which is now how. We're seeing presidential pronouncements, right? We see this come up on Twitter, and that's what we've got. Why didn't A.G. Sessions replace acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe, a Comey friend who was in charge of Clinton investigation, but got big dollars, 700000 for his wife's political run from Hillary Clinton and her representatives? Drain the swamp! Exclamation point. So you have more here from the president that is uh, critical of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And, you know, I'm not sure what reports to believe on this because we've already had uh, we've already had some who are saying that Sessions and Trump, some reporters writing that Sessions and Trump are really at odds over this, that they're not speaking. You see these other reports that I, I don't know how much credibility to give them, that there are are talks going on about who would replace Sessions. Um, and, you know, Rudy Giuliani has come up in that conversation as well as other names. But I thought it was interesting. You know, Trey Gowdy, who is a member of the, the House that I, I really, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't like politicians in the sense that I don't know them and they're not my friends, but, I, I, you know, and admire might be too strong a word. I have a lot of respect for. I have a lot of respect for. That's the, that's the best way I can think of to say it. A lot of respect for Trey Gowdy. 
Um, and he was on, I don't know which show, he was on one of the TV shows this morning, and I saw him, and he talked about this issue of Jeff Sessions, and here's what he said. Uh, well, you should immediately leave any country where I was the attorney general. Um, I would not stay um, if my employer had lost confidence in me. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, Attorney General Sessions may believe that he is doing the job the way he is supposed to. He doesn't work for the president. He works for a blindfolded woman holding a set of scales. So he's got to make that call. Um, it's a very difficult circumstance. And again, I view that job differently than I do Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Agriculture. It is heartbreaking to me as a former DOJ employee to see public squabbling between the commander-in-chief and the nation's top law enforcement officer. I would agree, especially because I think that Sessions uh, has shown himself to be uh, highly ethical and a, and a gentleman and loyal to the administration and, and also the American people the whole time he's held this job. You know, he left a very safe seat in uh, Alabama and a Senate seat to, to take the job. I know Trump gave that interview to the Wall Street Journal. I, I just have to think that this is part of uh, this is part of a Trump stratagem. Uh, and, I, and I can't pretend to know the president's mind. I, I think there are very few people who would publicly think that they publicly say that they could uh, know the president's mind. I think that he's uh, an enigma to a lot of folks, even those who are immediately around him and, and working with him. Um, but getting rid of Sessions, to me, would be a bad idea. I know a lot of other conservatives in the uh, media ecosystem have been saying the same thing. I just don't see how that would serve his uh, would serve his purpose. And I don't think he's going to do it. I know I said that to you yesterday. I do understand the frustration with the uh, with the de- with the recusal decision. Um, and I've seen a lot of legal minds that I. Uh, respect saying that it was it was the right move under the circumstances because Sessions was involved with the campaign. But, you know, I mean, recusal is a judgment call. Recusal is not a is not a black and white issue. It's not obvious uh, necessarily. And I, I think that the president's very frustrated because all this Russia stuff just continues to go on and on. I think there shouldn't be a special counsel. I've said that to you all along. And so you get to this place where, OK, the president's venting his venting his uh irritation publicly about what's going on with the attorney general and the Russia investigations. But I don't see him firing Sessions. I think that would I think it would be a mistake. And I don't know what to make of all these reports saying that it's really close to happening. And, you know, you're, he's he, every day is just one more day when a Sessions firing could could occur. I just I got to think who, who would take that job, by the way, after that? It'd be I don't know. Not, not a lot of top of the line folks i think would be excited to be the next one especially given what they're walking into with the special counsel and everything else so uh we'll see but the sessions trump feud i'm, I'm hoping it ends soon because uh, sessions is a good man and we need to focus on some other things here uh we will coming up stay with me he's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth the buck never stops team i've got some late breaking news today for you very interesting uh, DOJ update. We we're just talking about Sessions, the Attorney General, a minute ago. Here, here's I got to give you some background. I, I just was reading into this one myself, so let's let me set the stage. But here's the the bottom line: is that the federal government in the Trump administration, the Department of Justice, is taking the position now that when you refer to discrimination on the basis of sex, that has to do with male female, not sexual orientation. 
It also does not have to do with gender identity. So that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which bars discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, does not include, as a matter of law, does not include uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, so it, it is, does not include what we consider gay rights issues and does not include gender identity, I, people that believe that they are another gender, transgenderism. Uh, here's the, the case. Um, the case is, well, it's already been looked at once, and now this is going to an on-bank on review Somebody was fired uh, back in 2010. I believe the case is Zarda v. Altitude Express. The plaintiff is the estate of deceased New York skydiver Donald Zarda. And this is according to the Washington Blade. And he was fired from his job in 2010 for being gay. A three-panel judge on the Second Circuit in April determined Title VII doesn't prohibit anti-gay discrimination and therefore doesn't apply to Zarda's case. So now the court uh, is looking at the Second Circuit is looking on bank, meaning all the judges get together uh, before the full court and the Justice Department, meaning our DOJ currently under the Trump administration, led by Jeff Sessions, has already weighed in on this issue. And they have said the following. Although the Equal Opportunity Commission enforces Title VII against private employers, and it has filed an amicus brief in support of the employee here, the EEOC is not speaking for the United States and its position about the scope of Title VII and is entitled to no deference beyond its power to persuade. The United States submits that—so this is the DOJ speaking or writing— that the on-bank court should affirm, reaffirm its settled precedent holding, consistent with the long-standing position of the Department of Justice, that Title VII does not reach discrimination based on sexual orientation. Uh, th until recently, this court's well-established position correctly reflects the plain meaning of the statute, the overwhelming weight and reasoning of the case law, and the clear congressional ratification of that interpretation. The question presented is not whether, as a matter of policy, sexual orientation discrimination should be prohibited by statute regulations or employer action. Uh, in fact, Congress and the executive branch have prohibited such discrimination in various contexts. Uh, the sole question here is whether, as a matter of law, Title VII reaches sexual orientation discrimination. It does not, as has been settled for decades, any efforts to amend Title VII's scope should be directed to Congress rather than the courts. Let me give you the, the plain language summary here of, of what's going on. Uh, so the Obama administration and Eric Holder uh, had determined that Title VII covered gender identity discrimination as well as sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, against uh, So essentially discrimination against the LGBT community in any context is covered under Title VII of, keep in mind, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which discriminates based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. What they were saying is, well, sex there means whatever we want it to mean. 
Sex there means sexual orientation. It means gender identity. And quite plainly, based on what they were trying to achieve, what Congress was trying to achieve in 1964, and based on what the word indicates, uh, that does not cover sexual orientation, and it does not cover gender identity. So how can the Department of Justice, and as was the case in the Obama administration with Eric Holder as the attorney general in this instance, just decide that it does? Well, because that was their preferred policy outcome. So what you have now is the DOJ coming out saying, no, words have meaning. This is what the word in the statute says. A court has already agreed, by the way, that that's what the word or that's what the word means in, in the context of the sentence. And that just because we may like something or not like something, it doesn't mean that the judicial branch uh, or doesn't mean that the executive branch in this case um, should just change the plain meaning of, wor- of a word because it suits it. This is really a case about whether words in the law have meaning or not. Do they mean what we want them to mean? Well, what we want them to mean, or do they? Or, and by the way, whether we want them to mean that or not is a separate issue. But I, what I'm saying is, do you get to just say, well, I want this word to mean something, and I'm in charge, so that's what it means? Because that was what the Obama administration did. The DOJ is even saying, look, we're not, we're not claiming that you shouldn't be able to bar sexual orientation discrimination. We're not saying you shouldn't be able to, or you shouldn't bar discrimination against sexual orientation or gender identity. We're just saying that's not what Title VII of the Civil Rights Act says. And so if you're going to bring a lawsuit and say that this is Title VII discrimination and you're going to bring it in federal court, you got a problem because that's not what the law says. This is one of the fundamental disconnects between left and right. This is a, an issue of progressives with their living constitution and their judicial fiat and their decisions from the bench that are usurping the prerogative of the legislature. They think that words mean what they want them to mean. And here's a case where this Department of Justice, under this president, or President Trump, is saying, nah, actually, words mean something, and it is objective, and we can define it, and we should. And that's what the basis of law is. This is a very important decision, but people are going to be very upset about it on the left. Let's talk about uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and her IT aid coming up here in a second. Stay with me. You know, team, with all of the stuff happening this week, this seems to have gotten lost and the major TV networks aren't touching it at all. You had somebody try to flee the country recently, an individual who is under indictment for multiple federal felonies who was working for Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she who was formerly the head of the DNC and a congresswoman from Florida. Her IT guy was caught trying to flee the country, and there's all kinds of very interesting and uh, unsettling details in this case that you're not going to hear about from many places at all. We've brought somebody on who can tell you just what's going on here. Luke Rosiak, he's an investigative reporter at The Daily Caller. He's got an exclusive on DailyCaller.com. FBI seized smashed hard drives from Wasserman Schultz IT aides home. And also, Wasserman Schultz's IT aide arrested at airport after transferring 300K to Pakistan from house office. Luke, great to have you. And what the heck is going on here? It really is like a story out of a Tom Clancy novel. Uh, this guy named Imran Awan, who was Debbie Wasserman Schultz's top IT guy for many years, uh, was arrested at Dulles Airport outside of D.C. on Monday night trying to board a plane to Pakistan. The FBI uh, arrested him 
Uh, he had previously done a wire transfer for $300,000 uh, from the bank that's in a house office building to Pakistan. Uh, now, his wife, who was also a congressional employee, both were making $165,000 in taxpayer money. Uh, his wife previously left the country and went to Pakistan. Uh, authorities uh, did search her bags when she was leaving, and they found $12,000 in cash. Uh, but they permitted her to board for whatever reason. This was back in March. So she's been waiting in Pakistan with the $300,000 for months now, uh, but her husband was nabbed by the FBI as he tried to join her just on Monday night. Can you give us some of the additional background here in terms of this individual? Uh, well, it's really a few individuals, but there's one in particular, this IT aide, and it's some family members of his as well, right? And they've been doing work on Capitol Hill for some very senior Democrats, including Debbie Wasserman Schultz, stretching back over years. I think I saw that they've, in total, been paid $4 million in order to provide IT services on Capitol Hill, which uh, also, by the way, would have given them access to all the emails because of the IT people that are going back and forth with uh, congressmen, right? I mean, so there's there's some real history here to this. That's right. Imran's job was to be the email administrator. He was the one who set up the email accounts for uh, the several members of Congress for whom he worked, as well as all their staff. And, of course, that means he could access and read any of the emails sent and received, as well as all files stored on the computers of those members and those staffers. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was one of the first members he's worked for uh, way back in 2005. He joined his staff, her staff, and he's been with her ever since. Um, but shortly after he joined her staff, all of his relatives started appearing on the payroll of other House Democrats at salaries that were much, much higher than an IT guy would typically make. We're talking $165,000 a year, which only chiefs of staff make in the Capitol Hill world. Um, and these guys were not, by all accounts, everyone I've talked to, they weren't seen working. Um, one of the guys, uh, his last job experience, according to a uh, housemate of his, was working at McDonald's. And yet, House Democrats were paying this guy to be their IT guy, uh, and they were signing off on the paychecks uh, month after month. So part of what's going on here appears to be, um, although the investigation is still going on, it seems like it was a ghost employee scheme, you could say, where Imran Mawan, who you could say was he's the eldest brother and he you could say he's the ringleader, he puts all these relatives on the payroll to bring in literally $4 million since 2009. Uh, but, of course, members of Congress were having to consent to this. Uh, now, at the same time, Imram is doing a variety of other weird uh, financial schemes in his personal life, uh, and some of them overlap with the House. For example, while they're all making $165,000 working on the Hill, they're running this car dealership or an LLC that says it's a car dealership uh, in Virginia. And this dealership takes a $100,000 loan from an Iranian fugitive. So these are not your ordinary uh, IT guys. And they are Pakistani-born, but they're not your average. Uh, most Pakistanis who are in America are just normal guys as well. And these are not that. There was any number of red flags. I mean, they had bankruptcy. They had 
criminal records. So they're working with all the emails. They can access all this sensitive information. And they've got debts, uh, all these kind of things that normally when you're going to provide someone with access to sensitive information as part of your job, you would check for that. Um, so a lot of really strange things. And yet year after year, these guys remained on the staff in these very sensitive positions until it all sort of started to unravel this year. We're speaking to Luke Rosiak. He's an investigative reporter at The Daily Caller. He has uh, an exclusive up on thedailycaller.com right now. And let's talk a bit about this. FBIC smashed hard drives from Washerman Schultz IT Aids home. Wasn't there also like a hidden laptop that they found somewhere too? I mean, there's some very shady. I don't have answers as to why it's shady or what's going on. But uh, Luke, tell us about this shadiness as I'm calling it. There's some weird stuff happening here. Uh, not bleach bit per se, but, you know, baseball bats to hard drives. That seems unusual. Yeah, you know, the Capitol Police announced a criminal investigation back in February, and they told members of Congress that Imran Awan and his relatives were the suspects in this criminal probe and that they were banned from touching house computers. Uh, and I thought that would be a big story at the time, particularly when I did some basic investigative research on these guys and I saw their court filings. They've been involved in so many different lawsuits, and a lot of people have accused them of fraud in the past. They had the bankruptcies. They've had you know, different run-ins with the law and minor different things, um, things that were typically red flags. And then in conjunction with the latest allegations, which – uh, you know, were said to involve breaches of cybersecurity. Basically, um, the investigation is involving um, suspicion that they were funneling um, files off-site. And an IT guy did tell me that, um, you know, basically they were sending members' files to a secret server that was outside of the House of Representatives. Uh, so when all these things were going on, I thought certainly this would be. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, sorry, Luke. Hold on. Can you, can you just repeat that part? They, they were moving files off-site, and that was a big. That, that's a big issue, right? What, what happened? Yeah. So these guys could read all emails sent and received, and they had such a suspicious background. And then uh, what we're hearing, what I've heard from sources, uh, is that basically they were sending. Um, congressional data off-site onto a, ser- a secret server. Well, but like, what? So why would, is there any is there any harmless justification that that anyone has raised as to why they would do that? Um, I haven't seen anyone. People just have not really been engaging with this story much. One relatively innocuous explanation I could think of was that these were no-show jobs, and they wanted to basically have the computers be based out of their house so that if one broke, they could fix it. Oh, okay. Well, um, fair enough. That's, you know, that's speculating, and, and even so, it would be a massive violation of the rules surrounding house security. I mean, they have a way of, of doing things there. You can't just say you're going to host a... Yeah, I mean, this is like the server. This is like the Hillary server in the bathroom all over again. Exactly. And, you know, Politico has reported a little bit about this. They said that the Capitol Police are doing a criminal investigation into serious and potentially illegal cyber breaches. Um, But overall, people haven't been talking about this. And I think, you know, what we're hearing about Russia and other cyber attacks, and there have been others as well. For example, OPM was attacked. I think it was China that attacked that government agency. And this is part of the pattern. And if you care about one, you should care about the others. I mean, ultimately, this is about national security. 
rather than partisanship. But um, the members did play a role here, and that's something that's going to be determined because, again, I mean, they kept these guys on the payroll for years after year. Uh, and uh, to get back to a question you asked a little bit ago, um, at one point the Capitol Police did seize a laptop from – they found this laptop stashed in an abandoned house office building. And it was had been used by Imran, so the Capitol Police seized it, and they wanted to look at it. And Cap, uh, Wasserman Schultz claimed it was hers and that she was blocking the police from looking at it by saying, that's my property, and I'm not going to allow you to search this evidence. And there's this bizarre video exchange in a televised hearing, and you can see it on dailycaller.com, where she tells the chief of the Capitol Police, if you don't give me back this laptop, there's going to be consequences. Uh, and so it is kind of similar to what we did see with the DNC, where they never did turn that server over to the FBI so that they could um, investigate and hold responsible the hackers. Yeah, well, um, wait, so why, why would a very senior, well-known congresswoman and former DNC chair threaten the chief of Capitol Police over looking at a laptop that was tied to these shady individuals that she had? I mean, again, I, I can't think of an innocuous reason for it. It seems very odd. Yeah, and again, when I when this story first came to uh, my attention, I thought it was interesting no matter what, but I thought what was had occurred is that these Democrats had hired some guys that turned out to be no good, and they basically were stealing their information, and I thought certainly the Democrats would fiercely condemn them and seek prosecution to the fullest extent of the law. But what we've seen instead is basically – uh, members have very much tried to ignore this story. They say it's no big deal. Maybe it's a misunderstanding. Some people have even said, some members of Congress, for example, this guy Gregory Meeks of New York, has said it's probably because of Islamophobia, because these guys happen to be Muslim. Right, of course. I've seen, I've seen the evidence, and a lot of it is um, the court documents that are online, and now we have an FBI affidavit. And it's pretty hard to argue with the facts. I mean, just objectively, there were some very real security concerns here. And the reaction that we saw from the members who were employing these guys was not uh, really diligent and security conscious, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Luke, look, keep us updated on this, all right? As you get more, we'd love to have you back as uh, as follow-up to the story. Luke Rosiak, everybody, investigative reporter at The Daily Caller. Go to dailycaller.com for his exclusive on the FBI looking at this former senior uh, IT aide to Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Luke, thanks again for joining. Great to have you. Anytime. Uh, team, we are going to hit a break here in uh, just a few. 844-900-2825. Also, don't forget, bucksexon.com slash store for all of your Team Buck gear needs. Hats, T-shirts, and more coming. We'll be right back. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Very interesting report out of the Washington Free Beacon and our friend Adam Credo down there says that the State Department is in a state of open war with the White House. Goes into some details here about how sources are saying the State Department or the State Department bureaucracy is ignoring directives from the White House. And that there are people who are working for the State Department, so they are collecting a federal government paycheck. They are employees of the executive branch, and they're taking it upon themselves to ignore the orders and directives and guidance of 
the White House and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. As you may have already read in recent months, because occasionally the media will just decide that it's time once again to run one of these stories about supposed Trump administration dysfunction, there have been a series or there are a number of State Department positions, senior ones, that are unfilled. And this is now, of course, leading to uh, people to say that the State Department is not being treated properly by the Trump administration and that there are all of these problems with the fancy uh, elitist uh, diplomats of Foggy Bottom uh, not getting along with the Trump administration because Trump is uh, dismissive of them or is unwilling to see it from their perspective or whatever it may be. This is, by the way, completely unsurprising. As somebody who has known and is has known plenty of uh, State Department people and is quite familiar with uh, how a lot of State Department stuff goes down. Um, it, it's a very left-wing place. I mean, the predominant ethos in the State Department, politically speaking, is pro-Hillary Clinton, pro-Democrat Party, and, and there's even a fair amount of uh, internationalist, uh, Sandernista, Bernie Sanders sentiment among state employees uh, that I, I have known and, and certainly heard speaking and, and seen out there on uh, the cable news and uh, everywhere else that they make the rounds. So that foggy bottom, which is, of course, D.C. shorthand for uh, the State Department, that foggy bottom is in something of a quiet revolt against the Trump administration is completely unsurprising, as I said, and this is to be expected. But the way that it's reported, I think, is really interesting and noteworthy. Uh, First of all, you will see, of course, that uh, there have been stories in the past that you may not consider to be fake news, but as I like to say, it is false news, stories about mass resignations from different, uh, different government bureaucracies. And there were, to be sure, some stories that were just breathless. This, this was back in January. Uh, the State Department, this is a quote, Washington Post, the State Department's entire senior administrative team just resigned. Oh, well, the problem with this story was that it just ignored what is standard practice for the uh, State Department and that there were uh, I mean, oh, th- there were even stories about a coordinated mass res- a coordinated mass resignation. No, that's in fact not true. There were just some people who were uh, asked for their letters of recommend- uh, letter <laughs> recommendation, letters of resignation by the president. So these were political appointments. They are uh, not career appointees, or or rather they're not careerists, they're not civil servants. Uh, These were political appointments that ended. A new administration came in, and I mean, you had CNN reporting on this, you had the Washington Post, oh, the entire State Department's resigning, it's just terrible. Well, it wasn't true, and of course, you'd have to ask the question, why would they get this story so wrong? One of the most important questions you can ask about any Trump-related fake news story is, why did they get this wrong? Is it because it was a difficult story where the facts were hard to ascertain? Or is it because, sure enough, the anti-Trump animus is so strong, is such a powerful force in the media, that they will either actively lie um, or they will make 
very obvious and very rookie mistakes because they're just so excited at the prospect of negative news about the Trump administration. With the State Department, I think it's a take your pick. With the stories we've seen about state and the dysfunction that the that the uh, Trump administration has caused, did I just say the Obama administration a minute ago? I might have, but the Trump administration is what I've been talking about. Uh, and the mass resignation story was fake. And, and now, sure enough, we have uh, people writing about the internal policy civil war within the State Department. And I have to say, this is a, one of those places where we, we will see, and you'll see more of this as well as time goes on, although I've also noticed there are some reports that Rex Tillerson may not be staying around State Department all that long, which I'd find completely, uh, th- th- that would not in any way shock me. State Department is a huge bureaucracy, best known for the uh, for the much repeated by uh, other government employees phrase of the State Department that, quote, the State Department was here before the president and the State Department will be here after the president or State Department presidents come and go. But the State Department is forever. That tends to be the sentiment there. And you have to wonder uh, in an era of instantaneous communications and uh, faster global travel and, of course, uh, all that comes with it than uh, in previous decades. Uh, Do we really need quite the same uh, permanent diplomatic representation all over the world that we've had in the past? It's it's a fair question, I think, if you're just looking at staffing levels. Uh, I I know that every person who is an analyst for the government is led to believe that they're a a critical part of the government's information and and ability to think and that they're informing policy decisions. There are a lot of people working in state and other places, too, for the federal government who are not what you would call in a reasonable sense uh, critical to the mission. Uh, but anyway, that's so you got this this policy fight that's going on inside a state. And I know I just saw there was a senior another senior state person resign. But my understanding that just happened the last 24 hours. My understanding is that it's because that individual wasn't going to get the job that uh, that he he or she, I forget, I think it's a he, um, wanted. And so moving on, you know, that's not really not really a surprise. I mean, there's nothing about this that's particularly newsworthy other than anything that shows people leaving the State Department is supposed to tie into this narrative. And the narrative is that Trump is such a a monster when it comes to international affairs and foreign policy that uh, whatever he whatever he does or everything that he does causes more consternation, more angst inside a foggy bottom and all these brilliant uh, multilingual career civil servants at the State Department just don't know what they're going to do with themselves. First of all, you got to assume there are some people in the state in state who are very quiet about it, but who are probably Trump supporters, right? Voted for Trump. I don't I have no idea what the percentage or number would be, but I know they're there. Uh, but I can also tell you that the overwhelming sense you'd have from spending time in meetings and walking around the hallways of the State Department is that they are uh, just because of the way international relations is taught in schools and the, the kind of people that it often uh, it often attracts, especially from the academic world. You're going to get a lot of left of center and even far left people, and they're going to disapprove of not just Trump, but the whole notion of America first. I mean, at the State Department, there can be a, a creeping sense of uh, over overwhelming multilateralism or a, a really a, a relativism among all nations. 
because you start to view people that specialize in one area, start to think that area is much more important than it is, and they are favorably disposed towards the uh, international institutions of, say, the United Nations and, and other uh, other giant global bureaucracies like that just because of, as I was saying, how international affairs are taught in schools and the kind of people that tend to go into those areas of study. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, you'll be seeing more about this, I'm sure. Uh, Tillerson, I wonder. I wonder how he's really doing in this role. I mean, I, I thought he was a good pick. I like that there's a businessman who's running the State Department. I like that he's obviously run huge institutions in the past. But I, there's a part of me that feels like at some point Rex Tillerson is going to come out and be like, look, I ran Exxon, the biggest company in the world, but the problems we had there are nothing compared to the intransigence and sloth and just bureaucratic inefficiencies of the State Department. That that would be my guess, and I wonder if he'll just come out and say that at some point. Um, it would be certainly interesting for me to, to hear that, if, if, if in fact we could hear from the Secretary of State. All right, team, we've got, got more. I'll be back with you in just a few. Stay with me. All right, welcome back, team. I know that there's so much going on right now, all the Jeff Sessions stuff with Trump, the transgender ban this morning via Twitter. Is it really a policy plus health care, Congress, the GOP that can't get their act together? But, you know, this week was supposed to be American Heroes Week, as determined by the White House, and we certainly haven't forgotten that here in the Freedom Hut. So to that end, I want to introduce you to an American hero. We've got Sean Gobin on the line. He's a United States Marine Corps veteran who served 12 years as an infantry rifleman and armor officer. After three combat deployments, twice to Iraq and once to Afghanistan, he decided to hike the 2,100-mile Appalachian Trail as a way to transition to civilian life. The healing effects of the six-month journey inspired him to found a nonprofit Warrior Expeditions, which sends vets on long-distance wilderness trips across the country to, quote, walk off the war. Fantastic stuff he's doing here. Sean, thank you so much, and thank you for your service. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. It's my honor to be here. Uh, first, just just tell me a bit about your time uh, time in the Corps and how you got to this place now where you're helping other veterans. Sure. So uh, my time in the Marine Corps, uh, my first tour, I was enlisted, uh, infantry rifleman, uh, but that was before 9-11. Um, picked up a commissioning program. Um, af right after I received my commission is when 9-11 happened. Uh, after finishing the basic school, I was designated as an armor officer. Um, checked into my first unit, second tanks. Um, and within 10 days of checking in, we were uh, in Kuwait. And uh, my first field op on the tank was the, uh, the initial crossing of uh, Kuwait into Iraq during the initial invasion. Uh, that was my 2003 deployment. Uh, my 2005 deployment, I took over uh, a tow platoon, uh, which is a Humvee mounted infantry platoon within a tank battalion. And in 2005, I spent seven months um, fighting the counterinsurgency fight uh, in Fallujah. And then fast forward to 2011, uh, I got tasked to go to Afghanistan and train uh, the Afghan National Security Forces. So I was basically bouncing around RC Southwest, um, training the Afghan military and police forces for about a year. And so then after all that time in theater, in various theaters, and, and combat experience and, and close contact with the enemy, you came back stateside, you transitioned, and tell us about that. Sure. So I decided to get out in uh, 2012, uh, the spring of 2012, and 
grad school wasn't going to start until that fall. And so I basically had a four and a half month window and it had always been a dream of mine to hike the Appalachian trail. And so that was my opportunity. Uh, so I drove out the back gate of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina on March 14th, 2012, uh, drove straight to Springer mountain, uh, in Georgia, and then spent the next four and a half months, uh, hiking the Appalachian trail. And, uh, what started off as just a personal goal ended up being, uh, honestly, a you know, a life-saving experience for me. We're speaking to Sean Gobin, United States Marine Corps veteran and founder of the nonprofit, uh, a founder of a nonprofit Warrior Expeditions. Sean, uh, by the way, how does that how does that go with the, the Appalachian Trail? I mean, where do you get food? And I mean, what, what's the like? What are the logistics of this like? So, uh, well, from my personal experience, which I had none at the time, um, I grabbed a bunch of gear I had hanging out in my garage and. Um, you know, and did the typical uh, military veteran thing and carried way too much gear and tried to hike way too fast, uh, too far in the beginning, uh, incurred a bunch of overuse injuries and then was excruciating pain for the first 30 days of my hike. Um, but then as far as resupplies, that's pretty easy. Uh, the, ta- the trail crosses a number of towns uh, every few days or so. And so you basically just hop off the trail, go to the nearest gas station, uh, fill up your pack with uh, your favorite candy bars and granola bars and dehydrated meals, and then just hop back on the trail. What are some of the most amazing things that either you saw or just some of the experiences you had uh, during this 2,100-mile hike on the Appalachian Trail, whereas, as you put it, you walked off the war in a sense? Yeah, and it was really happenstance, which was the most impactful part of the experience. Um, Again, I started it as a personal challenge, but then as I was making my way up the trail, I started to notice I was having a lot of these uh, therapeutic effects uh, from the hike itself. Uh, The first was just having the time and space uh, in my own head to process and decompress from everything I had experienced. Uh, Because as we all know, you know, current day veterans, I mean, you can be on the battlefield one day and then you're home the next. Um, and then you multiply that by a bunch of deployments, and then, you know, you transition out of the service in a, in a blink of an eye, and you're scrambling trying to start your new life. And, you know, we never really had the chance to really just stop and process and decompress everything we had gone through. And so that was the first thing that was really impactful. The second was I did the hike with a buddy of mine who I was deployed with, and so having another combat vet with me just to talk to uh, during the journey was really good. Um, as you're going through this process and this experience, um, just to be able to talk to somebody who gets it was, was really important. And then the third thing that was really incredible about the experience was uh, meeting all these wonderful people along the way. Um, after three combat tours and dealing with the absolute worst of humanity, uh, a lot of veterans come home and you start to get really cynical towards people and society at large, which causes a lot of veterans to isolate. But during my journey, I met all these wonderful people along the trail who didn't know me from Adam, but who were opening up their homes to me, supporting my journey, and it really reestablished that basic faith in humanity that I lost along the way. Sean, for veterans who are listening or those who are family members of veterans, and there's certainly a lot of them right now who are listening, uh, if they would like to see what you're up to and, and learn more about Warrior Expeditions, where do they go and what can they expect? Sure. So they can get all the information about the organization from warriorexpeditions.org. There's also an application process on the website um, where people can submit applications. And then uh, they can follow the journeys of our veterans that have participated in our program to include the 40 that are participating this year across our 10 different trails that cross 35 states. Um, So it's a great place to learn about what we do and how we do it. And then uh, really interesting to watch the veterans as they make their way up the trails each year.
on uh, our social media sites. And how, how, where are, I mean, you've got a whole bunch of these trails. Have you done more than one of them? Have you done a few of these, Sean? <laughs> the plan was to do all of them, but after I did the first trail, which was the Appalachian Trail, and started my organization, um, this has now become a 15-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week commitment. And so uh, until I can find my replacement, uh, my ability to do some more trails is just going to have to wait. But what's now. the next, if, if you have to tell me right now, what's the next trail you're going to take if you had the time? Uh, I really like our biking program. Uh, we just started last year our Warrior Bike Program, which goes from Virginia to Oregon. It's uh, 4,200 miles, and it's a really cool bike trip on really cool bikes that we use. And so if, if I had the, the option, I think I would do that one next. Sean Gobin, United States Marine Corps veteran and founder of Warrior Expeditions. Go check it out, everybody listening. And, uh, Sean, thank you so much for joining everyone. This is one of our American heroes of the week. Sean, we really appreciate it, man. Uh, thank you for your service, and thank you for joining us today on the show. Thanks, Buck. I really appreciate it. And team, with that, we are going to be closing out here. Please do uh, download the show on iTunes, even if you are listening live, wherever you are, and whatever radio market you're in across the country. It's kind of a way of voting in favor of the show. Also, bucksexton.com slash store. Go check that out. You can buy gear. Please do. It supports us here in the Freedom Hut. Excited to join you tomorrow night with much more of the kind of stuff we talked about today and more. And until then, my friends, as always, shields high.